Migration is amongst one of the primary social and political discussions happening in every country across the world, but it's especially heightened in Europe and the UK. As many governments across Europe, including the UK, struggle to balance the clear economic need for migration against domestic xenophobia and polemic commentary from cultural extremists, they seem to undertake increasingly extreme policy measures and consequently use even more extreme language to rationalise these policy measures, also often allowing the conversation to conflate with our international humanitarian responsibilities to refugees. The debate is public and culturally galvanising. We've even had national broadcasters like the BBC being caught in the crosshairs over the suspension of Gary Lineker for his tweets about the rhetoric used by the UK government towards refugees and asylum seekers. Some of the policy measures are so extreme that many human rights groups and legal bodies have denounced them as illegal or inhumane, and allegedly even the British monarchy have commented that the policy of migrant deportation to Rwanda is appalling. Unfortunately, a greater proliferation of hate speech seems to be one of the defining outcomes of the internet era, particularly since the birth of social media. It may seem obvious, but a 2022 study from the University of Salamanca published research data that suggested there's a direct correlation between the volume of geolocated hate speech on Twitter and hostility or a lack of social acceptance of migrants. And then in 2019 and 2021, respectively, research by Ditch the Label and the Council for Foreign Relations both shared extensive evidence of how hate speech has directly correlated with violence or abuse towards groups targeted by hate speech. For our modern advertising industry, which inhabits the same communications ecosystem and social platforms where much of this hate speech is occurring, this should be a concern on everything from brand safety to perception, sentiment and arguably consideration, even for brands that may not have social purpose front and centre of their communications. With increasing global conflict, climate change and economic hardship resulting in higher migration and more displaced people than modern times have ever experienced, in this episode of Conscious Thinking, we'll be discussing what responsibility brands and the advertising industry shoulder in doing more to protect migrants and refugees from hate speech and discrimination. I'm your host, S.A. Davies, Chief Operating Officer across EMEA at Densu Creative, and I'm joined by Pia Oberoi, Senior Advisor on Migration and Human Rights at the United Nations, Dr. Karen Middleton, Marketing Lecturer at the University of Portsmouth. Her research spans the areas of inclusive and sustainable marketing and advertising, women's leadership, and violence against women and girls in the nighttime economy. Callum Hood, Head of Research at the Centre for Counting Digital Hate, which is a non-profit organisation working to disrupt the architecture of online hate and misinformation. And finally, Matt Potter, former current affairs journalist, best-selling author and chief content officer at Dentsu Creative UK. Right. Big thorny question that, you know, as I mentioned before, is affecting pretty much every country around the world is the hot topic of all political debate and never ending news cycles. It's one that's impossible for any brand that says it's plugged into culture, plugged into topical conversation and what's relevant to consumers to really kind of avoid. But Pia, sort of coming towards, you know, some of the work you've been doing with the United Nations, you know, what we are looking at, you know, with um, migration and attitudes towards migration is just it's a very obviously a very complex geopolitical and social issue and there is a ton of divergent rhetoric legislation and you know even more divergent public opinion around it is involvement in you know this topic hate speech towards migrants or you know sort of protecting migrants from hate speech something brands and advertisers should engage in um you know the un global compact for safe orderly and regular migration included for the first time the role of ethical advertising in confronting intolerance xenophobia racism and other forms of discrimination towards migrants why was this step taken and what does it entail what are some of the potential impacts and considerations for advertisers 
Thanks very much, Ete. It's a pleasure to be here. Maybe just to start, you know, with the context that you described, which is exactly that migration is indeed, it's a complex issue. It, you know, reaches into um, economic governance, uh, security concerns, I don't know, public services, urban planning. So there's a lot there that, um, that, that one has to deal with when one is putting in place uh, migration governance measures. I should say it's not a crisis, though. I mean, we 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 don't see an unprecedented uptick in in migration numbers. It, the it has remained relatively stable at about three percent of the world's population for over seventy years. Um, the crisis, as we call it, is really a crisis of compassion. It's a crisis of you know trying to understand how we deal uh, with this issue, and it's made more complicated when it's instrumentalized. Um, the UN Secretary General, you know, said that hate is the best-selling brand in the world, and really, it is that hate that's being instrumentalized and and used as a way to to you know draw which in society. What uh, the Global Compact for Migration tried to do, as you rightly said, for the first time, I think, at a, in an intergovernmental uh, global framework was to approach ethical advertising really in the context of encouraging independent media and fostering public uh, positive public narratives around migration. So it really was trying to look at the whole ecosystem and say, how can we put in place some positive measures? Um, and again, this is not something that brands or advertisers should necessarily be concerned or scared about intruding in, because at its heart, migration really is a very human phenomenon, isn't it? We all have experiences of migration ourselves and our families People move for family, they move for education reasons, they move indeed for protection. Uh, people are trafficked, you know, there's migrant workers, you have an experience with, you know, low wage or temporary migrant. So there's a lot kind of going on there. And what the GCM, the Global Compact for Migration, really was looking at, you know, saying that advertisers and brands can choose to fund free, independent, community-based media, for instance. They can choose not to support hateful narratives and toxic media. They can choose to integrate, you know, human rights due diligence into their advertising, build transparency into it. And they can also build the participation of affected communities into business models. So it's really, there's really, a, you know, a kind of a whole toolkit of choices that brands and advertisers can make to ensure that the debate that we have around migration, which isn't a crisis, but it really is something that's based in, you know, the humanity, the common humanity that we all enjoy. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that quite broad ranging and actually very effective toolkit that you've described, which plays into, you know, many of the um, skills and strategies that brands will deploy in their marketing activity for even their sort of core domestic customers. There is so much relevance there. So it's not even a leap in activity or strategy to deploy some of the things that is, you know, sort of put together from the compact. And I think the there were a couple of points you made there, which was sort of quite profound when you think of the role of brands and how many brands sort of posit themselves in the world, as you say, participation of communities and thinking not just of people, as you say, at the end of what is in many musical sort of like a perceived fabrication of a crisis, but actually realizing that this is an audience, it's a group of consumers, it's an intersectional group of consumers that are connected to many of your existing consumers who you know, the issue of migration aside, have real tangible networks and connections to the stories of people from, you know, sort of migrant community or are amongst migrants themselves. So, you know, there's, there's a real commercial opportunity there. But so many brands, you said the point before about the crisis of compassion. And one of the things we definitely saw since the pandemic, but, you know, so many brands have leaned into as part of their core creative strategy is compassion. 
you know, whether it's within um, family or within your community or, you know, even the brands that you have affiliation with having more direct compassion across their supply chain and so, you know, their sort of value chain. So it is so interwoven with modern brand marketing that the sort of reticence for brands to actually get get involved almost seems counterintuitive. And some have, Matt and Callum, I'd probably actually like to bring you in on this and just sort of find out which brands... Have you seen actively engaging on addressing hate speech? Obviously, you know, targets towards migrants, but also other vulnerable groups. It'd be interesting to know what actions you've seen taken, similar to the framework that, you know, Piers just mentioned and what worked, what hasn't. I've seen, you know, some tangible uh, activity from agencies such as possible, um, you know, with their We Counter Hate AI tech, which was actively removing um, hate speech from the public domain. Also, a few years ago, Perna Ricard, have been creating a crowdsourcing app that would allow you know social media users to report content they find objectionable directly to Pernod Ricard's uh, range of brands. And then Pernod Ricard would then use their influence uh, to force social platforms to review and remove the content uh, in question. All the specific details of how that mechanism will work with Unclear, there are clearly global brands of significant scale taking a stand um, and taking actions where they can influence. But yeah, it'd be good to see across the landscape. What else are you seeing? We've done lots of campaigning at the Centre for Counter and Digital Hate where we sort of make an appeal to brands, um, especially those that express values that are against hate, to actually put their money where their mouth is and withdraw their advertising from websites or social media platforms that are playing a big role in, in promoting hate. I mean, I think most brands, if you present them with some example of their paid content their ads appearing next to really toxic stuff they'll be shocked by it they're disappointed by it and they'll they'll do something relatively sort of practical about it um the test is really you know are they willing to do something uh really substantial about it really systematic which is much more challenging there's problems in the ad industry that make it really difficult as an advertiser to know where your ads are going to end up and that's a systematic thing. Um, and I think there's, we'll get into this more in the conversa- conversation, I'm sure, but there's, there's a sort of double dilemma for brands at the moment, which is not just, is my, is my advertising brand safe? Is it, you know, not appearing next to stuff that's really toxic? There are now some platforms, namely Twitter, which play such a big role in the promotion of, and, and a growing role in the promotion of hate and misinformation that brands have to ask themselves some hard questions about whether they want to be handing money to those platforms at all. Yeah, I mean, we will definitely explore Twitter and the continuing and maybe slightly bizarre um, strategic pivot it keeps taking towards the content. And obviously, there's there's all sorts of conversations around free speech, but then there's also responsibility, I think, that needs to be both taken by brands or anyone communicating on the platform. But yeah, Matt, just on the topic of brands. Well, through all of this, and you mentioned that I was a foreign correspondent. I was in the former Yugoslavia in the 90s, and I saw what happens when people who have – there has not been a problem. They have lived together. Suddenly get told that each other are other and that they are strategizing against you and they're strategizing. And a guy called – he's a Serbian journalist, Milos Vazic, summarized it in 1993. He said, you must imagine – a United States with every little TV station everywhere, this is before social media, taking exactly the same editorial line, one dictated by David Duke, you too would have a war in five years. And I think when when I think about the way in which 
what we've got right now is, sure, everybody agrees, everybody agrees that there should be more compassion. Brands shouldn't appear next to hate speech, you know, and so on. But I don't think we're seeing enough action from brands. And I think there's a bystander effect in this. I think it's very, very convenient for a lot of brands to go, well, what are we supporting this time? This is Pride Month. What are we doing? This this is, you know, this is this month. What about what do we fundamentally believe and how are we going to show up? And I, I do think there's a bystander effect. You know, you'll get Stop Funding Hate or you'll get the Check My Ads Institute alerting people to, you know, look at where your advertising has come next to. And it turns out it was always somebody else's job. It turns out it was the people who run the inventory. And there's this odd, diffuse sense of lack of responsibility. And I think until C-Suite gets involved and says, absolutely, we're going to we're going to show allyship. We're going to stand up for compassion. We're going to do all of that. And that is fundamental to what we do. I don't think a lot is going to change. I think th- those measures of hitting the moles as they arrive above the ground, if you know what I mean, they are small and they're piecemeal. I think the bystander effect is is very real on that. And in the meantime, as you say, Callum, we've got a lot of CEOs pretending they don't see it, a lot of hate being paraded as free speech, and it's not right. Yeah, there is definitely space for public discourse and, you know, the sort of plurality of uh, opinion. Arguably, the same platforms that are campaigning for plurality of opinion and sort of free speech are not then actually engaging different sides to have conversations and, you know, come to understanding arguably of each other's point of views and and starting to move forward and instead they are pushing more and more of that polarization which is almost counterintuitive to saying you're supporting plurality of conversation there's an interesting point you made there around um purpose washing and it reminds me of a a interview i saw with the alphabet ceo the other day essentially saying that often what many brands do is because they're trying to obviously keep themselves culturally relevant um they actually spread themselves too thin whether it's areas of activity in csr or you know environmental responsibility or you know sort of social inequality social justice his point of view was tie it back to your core values the things that are intrinsic to your supply chain or your uh, ecosystem and if you end up doing less do it properly yes and they see take, it through exactly that they take a lot of brands are taking a campaign by campaign mm, view mm. what hashtag are we behind this month what hashtag instead of going who are we how do we want to show up? Are we compassionate? Are we decent? Do we recognise shared humanity and so on? Which would inform a lot more. Yeah, absolutely. And to sort of play devil's advocate, as you say, on that point of bias, and particularly around the issue of migration and thinking of, you know, how much this has been a hot topic in the UK. And Karen, I'd like to sort of draw you know the conversation at you know at this point um you know hate, hate speech aside which i think any reasonable person would agree is pretty abhorrent and illegal given that migration is such a socially polarizing um issue with people on complete extreme ends of the spectrum and some brands may perceive that some of the consumers or the audiences by which they will need to build relationships with generate revenue and sort of growth from may have quite differing opinions to the brand's core values and how that would tie to protection of migrants or, you know, other vulnerable groups. There's so much talk about brand activism, and we have seen some recent examples in in the US of, you know, where brands have taken a stance and started to roll it back based on pressure of other extreme groups. Is the reason, you know, to Matt's point, the sort of bystander approach 
specifically around this topic of migration, is the reason around some of that lack of engagement because there's a fear that it could commercially backfire given some of the opinions that exist around the subject nationally? Yeah, there's there's certainly a lot there. And I think, you know, what's already been discussed raises some of the really important issues to to be looked at here in relation to to these areas of hate speech focused on, you know, migrants, but also uh, any marginalised groups and the digital environment that in itself is part of how this problem has, of course, emerged. I think Matt mentioned around concerns with regulation, a lack of transparency and truthfulness that have emerged in the digital environment itself, then play out into challenges for effective uh, corporate governance. And in fact, you know, it's it's the, the kind of situation that in the advertising industry, but in particular, the media industry is an environment to which the, that industry is so firmly embedded. I think, it, you know, it br- brings it back to a much more overarching viewpoint, which is the role of business. I mean, we've mentioned the, the UN Global Compact and um, responsible advertising, but actually in the, the environment that we all operate in, in the, you know, this world of challenges that, that we are facing, we're seeing um, a lot more development, of course, in, in environmental and social governance. And I think it kind of plays into something that is at the heart of the advertising and the media industry in the arguably hate speech and the digital environment that supports it and the advertising, programmatic advertising that supports it is arguably the most challenging and responsible area of, of that industry that, that needs to be addressed. If you're looking at a wider role of business, which is not purely looking for, for growth, um, you know, in advertising, not purely looking for attention, but actually that, that businesses need to move into having governance and uh, goals that do support a, a very much a brand purpose proposition and are very much uh, looking at the, the wider well-being of all. So it is a, it is a move that, that is happening. But I think when that starts to, to come through, and, and obviously it's incumbent upon us to try to push that through, with developing the logic behind it, developing the understanding and raising the awareness, there is more scope for the advertising industry as a whole to to get on the back of dealing with this problem, developing the competencies, talking about mole slapping or however we want to term it. You know, there certainly does need to be a much more joined up approach to to develop those competencies. And, you know, I think it's an area within the industry that needs to emerge uh, around sustainability, around the tech, you know, the the artificial intelligence that actually will come much more up to speed. I mean, obviously, we've got keyword blocking um, and things like that that are happening, but it's, it is really inadequate at the moment. And the, the technology, I'm no tech expert, but, you know, the technology one would hope can certainly evolve if if the resources is put into that, which would and then enable that brand safety to become much more of an overarching mission for, for the whole industry. Um, I mean, one example that is a success story is actually in joining up different brands, organisations, NGOs. The UN Unstereotype uh, Alliance was a, was a huge success story, particularly focusing on gender stereotypes in advertising. But I would argue that, that actually bringing together brands, organizations, uh, regulators to 
you know, to a task force to develop this, this competence to, to address this problem through, um, technology itself, but also to raise awareness. And another, another example that, uh, of, a, of some really good work that, that I've seen recently from a brand themselves taking responsibility is Bodyform. And they've actually tackled this idea specifically by talking about the fact that the keyword blocking has actually created another uh, unexpected problem for the industry whereby genuine advertising is not necessarily placed by contentious words which may be seen as contentious like muslim or in the case of body form vagina uh, you know so so body forms advertising has faced its own problems in terms of its um you know the, the, the programmatic advertising that's been served up and been blocked but by raising that issue at the same time as uh, reducing the stigma around women's menstruation by you know using the role the platform the stage of advertising it also raises the understanding much more broadly um, around ways to tackle hate speech and, and how hate speech is formed. There's so much in that as well to unpick and sort of explore the groups. I mean, you, you raise some really good points around brand purpose and the commercial imperative around that. And, you know, there are many global brands, you know, across uh, PNG, you know, Dove, for example, and across Unilever who have been putting purpose front and center of their sort of strategic and brand comms and it's delivered success and it's sustained success particularly in the case of you know diving the campaign for real beauty which also tackled gender specific hate speech as part of it the other point that you kind of mentioned and we'll come on to talk about um, platforms in a second is that you know as, as an industry despite being the point of genesis of you know many of the technology or you know the sort of um, changes in consumer behavior uh, interacting with the media ecosystem we always seem to be collectively slightly behind the curve, either through a lack of desire to regulate ourselves, or I guess the best way I can describe it is to sort of sleep on an issue until it becomes so problematic that it's, you know, it's kind of un undeniable rather than sort of leaning into it. And sort of in part, there's a point that you you made and um it might actually be a, quite a good point to bring you on, Pierre, is that um success is only really gonna come when you have the private and the public sector working with the audience, the consumers, the public as well, and the technology platforms unilaterally to sort of drive change and communicate and sort of share with each other on on, on initiatives. And that, well, at a sort of domestic level in the UK, that still isn't happening with enough, I say, directive and deliberation, particularly around hate speech, but online safety. I mean, you, you name the myriad of issues that are facing people in their, their day to day. They're actually af affecting vast swathes of the community, not just migrants. But that sort of collective approach between yeah, public institution and infrastructure and private infrastructure, I feel still needs more momentum, um, more engagement with brands and advertisers and sort of technology providers and particularly social platforms um, to sort of collectively drive change. Um, yeah, and Pia, I know obviously the United Nations, a sort of multinational organization. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. And, you know, we talked a little bit about the compact at the top, but how does a public body or a sort of multinational sort of NGO working more closely with the private sector? What are some of the learnings and experiences you've had? So I think one of the things that we've really appreciated has been having this conversation with the Conscious Advertising Network for a number of years now. Um, and we always say that it's it's often a, a question of learning each other's language and to really kind of, you know, try to be, be in the same room in a constructive um, kind of way. So, I mean, we from the UN Human Rights Office, you know, we've really been trying to kind of learn and understand how the whole ecosystem 
um, of advertising, including digital advertising works, um, and help really the partners understand where the human rights framework can be a toolkit, can be something that will be useful and not just a, a stick to, you know, kind of beat people over the head with. And so kind of, you know, looking, for instance, at the whole issue of regulation, looking at the UN guiding principles on business and human rights and saying, where do the imperatives around transparency, around, as I said, participation and bringing people into a room together, how can that help uh, advertisers and brands do the job that they need to do in a way that protects the the societies and the communities within uh, which they operate. So there's definitely a, a place to 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 come together and speak together, um, which is very very important. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as you say, so much of it comes from a common understanding and common viewpoint, and critically, the point that you raised, like language, plays such a key role in that in terms of pushing the agenda forward. I want to sort of bring it back to what many in the public sphere would probably say is the core of the problem. And it may not be, they may just be the tools enabling it. But um, I want to talk about the social platforms. And, you know, it's unavoidable to do that without particularly talking about Twitter, which is still the primary area for global discourse on pretty much any topic in the world. It is taking a direction by which, you know, strategically, it'd be saying it is being a stronger advocate for free speech and, you know, anti sort of censorship and, you know, whatever your sort of opinion on that, that is obviously the um, the narrative being driven. But it does mean that the platform itself appears to be increasing ambivalent towards hate speech and extreme views. And, you know, it's obviously dropped out of certain committees um, where there would be either regulation or sort of partnership with different groups to sort of manage underrepresented and vulnerable groups experience on the platform. We've had guests on this show previously talking about some of the lobbying and pressure and activism taken collectively across the advertising sector in the US in particular towards Twitter, but also other actually other platforms to sort of act more responsibly, particularly around things like brand safety and hate speech. Is it time really? I mean, given how many brands and advertisers are still using the platform because of its reach and whether you argue that most of it is bots or real people is it time for brands to actually walk the walk and collectively start abandoning um, twitter or in fact any social platform that isn't doing enough to protect any groups from hate speech yeah i mean i'm put my cards on the table twitter has always been my platform i've absolutely loved it i go to it first i check it in the morning i'm i'm gutted at what's happened i'm you know, I've, I've talked about being on the, you know, on the threshold of, of heading off. I post a lot less than I used to now. I think this thing about let's have free speech is a, it's a, it's a, a straw man. It's a false argument. It's very, very easy for somebody in a, in a position of privilege. And let's say it's Elon Musk or let's say it's whoever to go, you know, we're not going to moderate. Let there be a town square, a free for all. That assumes it's a level playing field. That assumes that let's say that there is a migrant version or a migrant-friendly version of Fox News. That assumes that, that the powerless are as powerful as those, you know, as Rupert Murdoch. That is an abrogation and an abdication of, of a very, very fundamental responsibility. It's a really good point that you raise. And, you know, Callum, I'd, I'd love to sort of bring you in to build on it, the, the fact that you say, OK, fine, free speech by, by its very own kind of nature has to be predicated on the fact that there will be a balancing view. I think the simple truth about about Twitter and free speech is that it was previously governed. You know, you've got the platform standards, which are effectively a contract between the users and the platform, and it says here's a set of standards that we need you to adhere to, and we will uphold 
those standards. And, and, and that basically governs speech on the platform in, in some way. Now, that's what we previously had with Twitter, a set of public standards, which, you know, you can raise questions about whether Twitter's enforcing them or not, but that, that they've openly declared that's how they're going to govern the platform and speech on the platform, you know, they'll, they'll, intervene as little as they can but those are those are the rules that they're going to abide by that's been substituted uh, that open set of rules that everybody can see and agree to has been substituted for the edicts of one man elon musk and there's been numerous documented cases in which the limits of speech on the platform as well as decisions about what kind of speech gets heard most and amplified are determined by that one man and his peculiar views about the world. And that's the reality of what we see on Twitter. And it's the reality is it's becoming a much friendlier place for hate speech and misinformation. The, the quantity of it's gone up to things like Twitter Blue, which gives a verified badge for the low, low cost of around $8.00. That's a bonanza for people that want to spread hate and misinformation. Because they've also been told, haven't they, that they'll get more, they'll, their posts will be boosted more, they'll get more. So actually, where it used to be something where, if you like, trusted voices would get that credence and that spread. And let's, let's not forget as well, I mean, sorry to, to come in, let's not forget that, what, two years ago, three years ago, we would have been talking about uh, Sheryl Sandberg and Mark Zuckerberg and the Rohingya migrants in Myanmar and so on. Let's not forget that absolutely you won't find the the, uh, the Elon Musk fan club here, but there is something around, I think, and we've, we've seen this this week with the, the kind of Reddit mod shut down. There appears to be something awry with the way in which those who run the platforms see themselves as corporate bosses with a responsibility only to be a corporate boss and to miss the fact that they that it is social media they they are taking on a social responsibility i mean that's the the sort of crux of it for me is that like in a medium that you know arguably has been around for 20 years what i guess collectively actually we we are uh, across the world still struggling to come to grips with is that it is so culturally dynamic um you know arguably more than some of the even more traditional um, media channels possibly because everything else was sort of broadcast and didactic Whereas not only does this broadcast out, but it's communities uh, communicating with each other, the proliferation of the content. So it lives and breathes very differently to any kind of polemic or propagandist media that, you know, channels or how propaganda has existed on media channels before, which has always been kind of one way traffic. This is uh, an ecosystem that feeds itself. And to your point around the responsibility then of the the boards the sort of leaders that run what essentially are still all private businesses that have such a significant influence on um, social and political discourse is sort of the crux of the issue and so expecting the social platforms whose in many cases revenue model is completely predicated on driving people to consume and engage with stuff that will either irk them or frustrate them or polarize them from the views of others or you know send them down into uh, other channels which naturally then will lead them into extremist content and you know sort of uh, hate speech or worse yet as Callum's mentioned before policy which affects millions of people is being decided by one individual who is essentially um, establishing the rules of safety and discourse on the platform is it too much to ever really expect real change, fundamental structural change in these platforms without disrupting the entire economy 
of social media. And if that is the case, is it time for more active government regulation or pressure from uh, other groups? And I know that then takes us down into the dangerous territory of, of a regulation and free speech. But are we holding out hope for change in the social media platforms that is never really going to arrive as quickly and as thoroughly as we need it to? Yeah, I think in answer to that question in particular, I think that all the, these points being made are, are really valuable. And there's such a melding of different aspects from the rapid emergence of unregulated media, whereby, you know, from a positive side, it's given a voice to those marginal, marginalized groups. But on the dark side, you know, the democratizing effects of social media has certainly given rise to this kind of hate speech and content that we're seeing. And there are various ways of looking at that, which I think it's interesting to address in, in terms of understanding how that radicalization, those echo chambers emerge and what effect they actually have in terms of creating hate speech. And then ultimately, as we know, that, that hate speech will lead to um, hate crime, you know, and that's some, certainly something that the UN are very mindful of. But as another kind of outcome, I mean, this, this idea of, of limiting free speech at the expense of hate speech is, is something that I think is such a prevailing and nebulous argument. And it comes from this situation that's arisen out of culture wars. Social media and the digital environment has probably contributed to this idea of culture wars, woke becoming a dirty word, you know, this kind of, um, of background. And actually what it arises from is a shift in power or a perceived shift in power or the institutions in society or those who are at the top of those institutions losing power to other groups who are taking that through. And I think it, it's quite Although I don't want to bore everyone by by talking really in in depth of about theory, the, the idea of of institutional change is, I think, very helpful here because to ask the question about do we need regulation? I think you know regulation is a pillar of of institutions. So we cannot have change and we cannot have um, institutions as they exist without some form of regulation. And this is the very point about the digital environment that it's emerged without regulation. You know, journalistic media is much more scrutinized. Digital media, social media, Twitter gives a platform to, to any individual who, who wishes to, 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 to spread an argument. And the point that someone else made was around um, something that I'm coining, enragement leads to engagement, you know, and and this is another kind of inherent issue um, around this environment. You know, it's, it seems to be a, a bit of a perfect storm that has, has led to, to these outcomes. So until that kind of regulatory position is adopted and seen as important, I think that the the normative change and the the ethical understanding of whether we are looking at free speech or or hate speech, the regulation is a key signifier for what is ethical and what is correct, as well as the actual understanding of the problem. You know, how does this emerge? How do these echo chambers, this individual environment whereby users will be you know, confined to their own space and, and they're, you know, hearing these very extreme views and that becomes normalized, uh, for individuals. And we must understand how dangerous that is and, and how to take steps to address it. But 
I guess the the problem is is that it takes effort and it takes work. So it's it's about really advocating and, and deploying resource and and building up the, the picture of why this this is important and seeing it to its end conclusion. And and I guess if the platforms are not taking their responsibility and it's to, it's to do with being in that position of power. And actually seeing that as, as a level of corruption that does need to be addressed by investigation and analysis and actually defining what we mean by hate speech and, and that it is unacceptable. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, at, at the moment, as you say, and it's sort of bringing it back to that point of regulation, which doesn't necessarily need to be sort of punitive legislature, but like measures to ensure that like any communication has balanced viewpoint and sort of in, encourages um, fair crossway discourse. I mean, at, at the moment, obviously, if you're a brand and you communicate a uh, product point and product value, the SA will ask, you know, so you have to provide evidence for it and you can't mislead consumers and so on. And it, that doesn't restrict creativity, nor does it actually restrict commercial activity because, you know, the industry is booming in how it's able to tell stories. But what it does mean is that people are presented as close to the truth as they can uh, be presented with around a product or a brand, there is fair representation. And, you know, where there is misrepresentation, that is challenged and communicated publicly. Now, whether the people then choose to pay attention to that is, is down to the person sort of consuming the content. But there are bodies that regulate that around communications. And maybe it's the same to sort of look more widely around hate speech and the ecosystem that, you know, kind of brands inhabit. And, you know, whether more needs to be done by brands that use the same communication space, use the same channels for reach and audience are also pushing for that sort of balance of perspectives. Pia, I know you have a particular view as well around regulation, also with you know some of the experience that you have in, in the UN. And you know, Karen actually made a good point in that the counterpoint is that if you have too much regulation, it, it can also cause issues for underrepresented or vulnerable groups who also do use the channels, right? Is there sort of yeah. uh, means of the real um, names policy, for example? Yeah, yeah. Ab- absolutely. But yeah, uh, Pia, I'd love to get your thoughts. No, I just wanted to maybe complicate a little bit the conversation and this idea of truth by kind of you know bringing in, I guess, the 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 reality, which is that there is no universal definition of hate speech, and most governments, in fact, kind of you know shy very far away from that for good reason, because we often say that you know the the, the counterpoint to to hate speech is more speech, and so you need to kind of you know populate the ecosystem with everybody's voices. But of course, as as you've all pointed out, there is an imbalance of power. I think the other complication in particular going back to anti-migrant hate speech is that it's a very kind of complex area because citizens are as much targets of anti-migrant hate speech as non-citizens, for instance. You have, and there was some interesting research being done a couple of years ago in the UK around the kind of subtle forms of hate speech, everyday hate speech, dog whistles, symbolisms. Everybody knows what you're talking about, but there's nothing there to necessarily regulate from a criminal justice perspective. And, and so, you know, within international human rights law, obviously you have incitement to violence as, as the, 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 the bar, but that's a very high bar to, to kind of put in terms of where do you stop? Where do you put that line to make sure that our societies are not being harmed by this insidious kind of drip, drip of the dog whistles and the symbolism? Um, and so it is, I think, really important um, to to have that regulation. But again, looking at it from the global perspective, you know, I mean, I'm sitting in the Asia Pacific region where really there's a big danger of misregulation or overregulation with authoritarian governments that are 
very used to and and happy to have tools to intimidate or harass or silence critics, migrants, human rights defenders who've been deported for speaking out and things like that. So it is, it's a really, really fine balance um, between, you know, kind of understanding that content moderation is actually very complex in this area. You can't just have a list of words and then those words apply in every context, you know, across the globe and regulation as well. And so, I mean, one of the things that I think, you know, that we've been kind of thinking about as well is comes back to that ideal participation that comes back to that idea that having people tell their own stories um, and being kind of lifted up, um, giving people space, understanding local context, but really not from a eye level perspective, diving into local context and saying, how do we together build a picture of the world that we want to see? Karen mentioned the Unstereotype Alliance, which is, it's a, I agree, it's a really, really good practice example. How about if we really kind of, you know, kind of dive into that kind of alliance to tell the stories of migrants in our communities? Because that's the other thing about the migrant issue. It's always perceived as something that's far away. It's it's other people. It's them. It's, you know, it's not us. But actually migrants live in our communities. We're often migrants in other people's communities, you know. So it's it's really, I think, about kind of saying what can we do to to tell those stories. And I think there are good examples out there about, you know, how we can put that representation. Advertisers, you know, you're the storytellers of society. This should really be kind of what you guys are really good at doing, is telling those stories. If you're a brand and you've been listening to this conversation, there is a risk that you may sort of think, well, this is quite overwhelming. Where do I start? How do I um, actually do something positive, take more responsibility as a brand? Like, you know, should I be looking at the social platform? Should I be looking at, you know, work with the UN over the compact? So what i like to do is just to go around you all and just a sort of like i guess parting thoughts advice recommendations to brands that are listening in that want to engage on this subject karen i'll I'll start with you thank you yeah i mean actually we're listening to one of the other podcasts just to to give an ad for 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 that it it was really useful to hear about brands obviously can you know really very much check where their record where their content is appearing and that's certainly something that i think is is incumbent upon brands and and media uh, companies to 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 be aware of that but i would certainly stand by the idea that that the effort in doing that is better as as a combined effort and you know to to look for ways to 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 find that cooperation and 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 that you know collaboration in in delivering that and actually it may, it may come from outside of brands it may come from supporting the idea and actually in terms of brands and advertising agencies just to just to really ensure that that they are aware of these problems that they consider them that they think of potentially having an eye on their brand safety taking some effort deploying some resource to doing that but understanding how the whole process works and within their organization that it's it is an issue that staff and and uh, you know the experts that are delivering the content are aware of and and they build it into to their work going forward in a broad way i think that's exactly right and again i can't help thinking of the fact well you're right peer absolutely spot on to say that on a global level there are, there are so many di- differences and nuances and different governments are different so regulation is difficult brands are often you know they'll show up in different places at different times but they're going to go like oh what the public wants but there is one kind of organization that is that is always banging on about the fact that it's global but has offices everywhere and a presence everywhere and that is the, the big media networks and should every instead of just the old model which worked for old media of a you know the account director and the creative and, and the strategist what about that and a 
and a safety ambassador? What about that and a and a decency advocate? What about that and a and, a, and an empathy? What, whatever it's going to be, but something that that stops that from being an invisible valley in between deliverables. Yeah, that's. I mean, that's a really good point. As you said, the not just the actual reach of media, but like the geolocation reach of media, and you know, it's something that every network kind of lords in terms of its scale. You know, plugging, as you say, uh, ambassadors, stakeholders within the network to. You know, address all the things we've talking about, brand safety and knowledge and awareness. And, you know, the point that we've all made earlier on, sort of collaborating with institutions, networks, groups outside of the sector, be that the UN governments, NGOs, you know, uh, Center for Countering Digital Hate, feels like actually quite a real, tangible and achievable step. Pia, would you like to build on that? Yes, of course. No, I did want to say that one of the things that we are um, hoping to do um, in the near future between the UN Human Rights Office and the Conscious Advertising Network is indeed to organize a dialogue to, with, um, you know, brands, advertisers, but also platforms, CSOs, media, um, really to look at those intersections between advertising and human rights. And we've gone through, you know, so many of them to really understand what are the points of commonality, the points of divergence or confusion um, and really to try and have that conversation so i'd really invite the 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 listeners um as well to to you know kind of get in touch with us we'd be very happy to involve you in that dialogue thank you and yeah callum i'll close on you i mean very briefly i mean if you're a brand i think you need to try and get your ads off the most obviously toxic sites i think you should probably be uh, promoting sort of or advocating for better transparency in the uh, digital advertising industry as well you know here here a lot and our own research suggests there's some chronic problems there that mean your ads will carry on show showing up on these sites essentially through ad fraud and finally of course they should engage with organizations like the conscious advertising network um you know good place for advertisers to go and and actually become part of common cause with with trying to change this stuff Excellent. Right. Thank you, Pia, Callum, Karen and Matt. It's been a fascinating, incredibly wide ranging and informative conversation. Thank you to our Densu Creative Editorial and Production teams for powering this whole series, to Bang Studios, the Nerve Music Library for our soundtrack and to all of you for listening. If you've enjoyed this conversation, you can find lots more like it by subscribing to the Conscious Thinking series wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more, go to ConsciousAdNetwork.com forward slash podcast.